Growing Patriot Podcast. I'm your host, Amelia Hamilton. When we left off last time, the American colonists were working to get a resolution. Things were not going well with their home country of Great Britain, and they wanted some representation. They wanted their voice to be heard. Great Britain was not happy. In this episode, we find out what happens when the British troops come and Paul Revere has to warn everyone. Here is six-year-old Jack from Brooklyn with the questions we'll answer in this episode. Did Paul Revere actually ride on his horse saying the bears are coming? Weren't they all British? Did Paul Revere ride, ride by himself? What did the people do after Paul Revere alerted them? My name is Emily Holmes, and I'm the Education Director at the Paul Revere House, and uh, that means that I am the person in charge of school programming and uh, teacher professional development and planning special events for uh, the public on our site. So, um, One of many people that do programs here um, for schools who come to visit us and also go to schools and do programs in classrooms. Oh, that sounds like a fun job. It is. Good. Well, we have some excellent questions from Jack today. Um, So in our last episode, though, we left off after the First Continental Congress. Can you tell us a little bit about how we got from there to Paul Revere's famous midnight ride? So people were upset and unhappy with the um, situation with King George III being in charge of the government and uh, having... Uh, very little say in their government here uh, in in Massachusetts and in the other 13 colonies. So um, Paul was actively involved in the group called the Sons of Liberty here in Boston, sending messages to the Continental Congress um, who were wanting to update them on events happening here in Massachusetts. So things like the Boston Tea Party, the day after that is the day of Paul's first documented ride to Philadelphia and New York to spread the news about what had happened and kind of get the Patriots' point of view out first to their um, fellows down in those areas. So he was taking messages for the next two years back and forth between um, leaders here in Massachusetts, the Continental Congress in Philadelphia. The British soldiers were sent to Boston multiple times over this kind of lead up to the Revolutionary War mm-hmm. era. So the, um, there were soldiers stationed here after the protests of the Stamp Act. Lots of troops came as a punishment for the protests here in Boston. They were here through the time of the massacre, so 1770. Um, so we're about to have the 250th anniversary of that event this yeah. week here in, in Boston. Um, and after the massacre, a lot of soldiers got removed from Boston. But after the Tea Party, three years later in 1773, King George responded by sending soldiers back to Boston to punish Boston for the Tea Party. So that really, the soldiers, because you know, news is traveling back and forth by a ship mm-hmm. to England. It takes a while, and then for that reaction to trickle back to the colonies. So the soldiers who were deployed as um, kind of to take over the government here in Massachusetts and, and run Boston, they were coming in 1774 because the Tea Party happened in December of 1773. Mm-hmm. So they arrive in 1774. They're stationed um, in the public spaces in Boston. They're stationed uh, camping out on Boston Common. They're quartered in people's houses um, in town. And they set up a blockade of the harbor. So mm. no 
people are allowed to use the waterfront for business. Um, no ships can go in and out with trade. Food can't get delivered by water. Firewood can't get delivered by water to Boston. So there are British ships blockading the harbor from that point on. And that's the era when Paul and his friends set up this to anticipate what they're going to do next, plan, figure out what the soldiers are planning based on their movements. So, for instance, they have kind of a routine every day normally where they do the same things, the same time, the same places. Mm -hmm. But when they plan to make a foray or a trip out to another town outside of Boston, they change their routine up. And so the the spies can kind of track their movements based on how their um, plans are changing uh, or how their movements are changing. And that is what leads to Paul... Uh, being one of the people involved in getting the message out that the soldiers are planning a trip out of Boston. Okay. So to go to Jack's first question, um, did he did he really say the British are coming? Because what Jack was wondering was, weren't they all British? Exactly. Yeah, everybody here was British. And the <laughs> phrase, the British are coming, used in talking about the ride, really comes in the 19th century. Lots of historians have really tried to study this and figure out um, when's the first documented evidence of this being written down, as something Paul Revere said, and nobody's really come up with a good good answer yet. Um, it's, it's a phrase that helps people understand the story, I think, a long time after we've separated from England, mm-hmm. but it wouldn't have made sense, as Jack said, when this was happening. So when Paul Revere was doing his ride, he was stopping in a few houses at a time and knocking on the doors of patriots that he knew, fellow Sons of Liberty, and telling them the regulars are out. Okay. He may have said other phrases, too. Um, he may have said the redcoats or the bloody backs or the lobsters. Those are all things they called the soldiers. But when he got to Lexington, which was his destination, and, and tried to wake up John Hancock and Samuel Adams, the guard who was protecting them, told him to stop making all that noise. And <laughs> Paul said, noise, you'll have noise enough before long, the regulars are out. That's the, the phrase that that guard wrote down later on in his life. So that's really the best documentation mm-hmm. we have of what, what words Paul was using that night. Okay. Um, Jack's next question, and you talked about this a little bit, but we think about it as the ride of Paul Revere, but he really, he wasn't out there riding alone. Who, who else was with him? Yeah, lots of people were involved. So Paul was one of many people who, as I said, were spying on the soldiers. The spies are kind of run by Dr. Joseph Warren. Okay. He's the leader of the spies here in Boston and the Sons of Liberty here. So he's the one who gave Paul the assignment of going to Lexington that night. And Paul left town a few days before that to go to Concord because the, the Sons of Liberty in Boston figured out that the soldiers were planning a trip to Concord. And that's about 20 miles west of here in Boston. So Paul was sent out a few days before their actual departure to warn the Minutemen in Concord to move their weapons around, don't keep them all in the same place. And then on his way home from that trip, he stopped in Charlestown, which is just across the water from his neighborhood of the North End in Boston. And he told his friends in Charlestown that he was going to be sent out again on a trip to warn um, patriot leaders in Lexington. You might have heard about that signal, the one if by land, two if by sea signal. So that signal was to his friends to tell them that he would be coming to their house to borrow a horse from them. So get the horse ready when they see those lights. And if he doesn't show up, then one of them would have to take his place and ride to Lexington for him. So it's sort of a backup plan. The other backup plan on the actual day of the ride was sending a different rider over to Charlestown. A friend who's a fellow son of Liberty, um, uh, William Dawes, is going to go the long way out the neck of Boston, which is a long part of the peninsula that connected Boston to the rest of Massachusetts. And he would have to go that longer route around to get to Lexington. So they were kind of hedging their bets and hoping that if one person made it, 
that would be great if two people made it. That's even better. But in case one of them got stopped, they hoped that the other one would get through safely to Lexington. He had friends hanging the lanterns in the church steeple for him. He had those friends giving him a horse in Charlestown. And then he started riding and stopping, as I said, at a couple of houses in each town. And those patriots would then go and warn more people. So each person that he woke up was then spreading the news to many more people who were then spreading the news to many more people. So the news kept going out further and further from that kind of center of where the action was happening. Okay. And so when people, that was Jack's final question, is how did people react? What did they do when they when they heard the regulars were out? Yeah, I think, well, the people who were called the Minutemen, who had this um, been training for this moment, who had been you know, practicing being alert and ready to respond to an event like this, they had kind of set up these systems already of, of planning who to tell where and when and how to spread this kind of message. And Paul alerted some of those members of the militia to go to in the next town over and wake up, and then that person would know who they would go to in the next town over and wake up. So a lot of people responded by getting out of bed, putting on their clothes, and getting their weapons, and going to respond to Lexington and Concord. So people from all over the colony, Massachusetts, and even further away colonies, got up and went to the place where this action was taking place in, in Lexington and Concord the next morning. Lots of people would then also go and stay somewhere safer, right? Some of the men who were leaving to go be in the militia might send their families to gather in another place that was safer. Um, so it was uh, probably depended on who you were and, and what plan they had set up in advance. Okay. Well, those are Jack's questions, but um, I would also yeah. just like to know a little bit more. Are there any um, maybe lesser-known stories about that night or anything kind of funny that happened along the way? So Paul wrote down three times in his life what happened on the ride. We're really lucky that he wrote an immediate account of his trip um, to explain why he was there because he ended up back in Lexington um, when the first shots were fired. So he was a witness to that battle that was the beginning of the war in Lexington on the Green. So he had to write kind of what they call a deposition, so an eyewitness account. He wrote a rough draft, just like people do in school today, and then he copied out a fresh, you know, nicer copy that he changed the wording a little bit here and there. So those two, um, we call them the accounts. So those two accounts are um, saved. And then about 20 years later, he wrote the longer letter, which described a lot more of the evening um, to his friend who was starting the Mass Historical Society, Massachusetts Historical Society here in Boston. So the Mass Historical Society owns all three of those documents, and they can be found on the internet. You can look them up and on their website and read them in Paul's handwriting, or you can read the um, typed versions, which are a little easier to follow. But Paul also was a father. He had um, seven kids home at the time that he left on the ride. Eventually, he became the father of 16 kids altogether and 11 grew up to be adults. Gosh. 51 grandchildren. Yeah, so a lot of descendants. And he knew many of those grandchildren. He knew many of his great-grandchildren. And they are the ones that he told the story to, um, kind of sitting around his knee, you know, and parts of the story that are not written down. So there's some parts of the story that are oral tradition that were just passed down from generation to generation in their family, directly from Paul, perhaps. And for those stories, we think he really kind of embellished a little bit and made it maybe a little bit more dramatic. He talked about um, forgetting cloth to muffle the oars as the boat that he was in went across the river to Charlestown. So he called up to a friend who was living near the dock to say, can you send me some cloth? Throw it down from the window. And she took off her petticoat and threw it down to him. And he also talked about having a 
um, dog, their family dog, who was following him around, who he was able to send back to the house with a note to his wife to say that he'd forgotten his spurs and could she send them back with the dog. So that's sort of a story that we don't have any written evidence for, but it's a story that was handed down with this, the oral tradition, so passed down from person to person. It's nice to think stories. that's true. I like the story of the yeah, dog. Yeah, so it's fun, fun parts of the story that may or may not be true, but definitely we're told to family members to kind of liven it up, I think. <laughs> sure, sure. Okay, well, our next episode will be about the shot heard around the world, so, so kids are definitely going to find out what happened the very next day. Oh, good. <laughs> All right, well, thank you so much for joining us today. This was wonderful. You're welcome. Thanks for asking me. This midnight ride, as they call it, was so important and became really famous. Almost a hundred years later, in 1861, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote a poem called The Landlord's Tale, all about that ride. I have some of my friends here now to read it for you. I hope you love it. My name is Preston Green. I am 14 and I am in 8th grade. Hi, my name is Nate Green. I am 9 years old. Listen, my children, and you shall hear of the midnight ride of Paul Revere. On the 18th of April in 75, hardly a man is now alive who remembers that famous day and year. He said to his friend, if the British march by land or sea from the town tonight, Hang a lantern aloft the belfry arch of the north church tower as a signal light, one if by land and two if by sea. And I on the opposite shore will be ready to ride and spread the alarm through every Middlesex village and farm for the country folk to be up and arm and to arm. Then he said goodnight, and with muffled oar, silently rode to the Charleston shore. Just as the moon rose over the bay, where swinging wide at her moorings lay, the Somerset, British man of war, a phantom ship, with each mast and spar, across the moon like a prison bar, a huge black hulk that was magnified by its own reflection in the tide. Meanwhile, his friend through the alley and street wanders and watches with eager ears till the silence around him he hears the muster of men at the barrack door, the sound of arms and tramp of feet at the measured tread of the grenadiers marching down to their boats on the shore. Then he climbed the tower of the old north church by the wooden stairs with healthy tread to the belfry chamber overhead and startled the pigeons from their perch on the somber rafters that round him made, masses and moving shapes of shade, by the trembling ladder, steep and tall, to the highest window in the wall, where he paused to listen and look down, a moment on the roofs of the town, and the moonlight flowing over all. Beneath in the churchyard lay the dead in their night encampment, on the hill, wrapped in silence so deep and still, that he could hear like a senator's tread. The watchful night wind, as it went creeping along from tent to tent, and seemed and seeming to whisper, all its well, all is well, a moment only he feels the spell of the place and the hour and the secret dread of, of the lonely belfry and the dead. 
for suddenly all his thoughts are bent on a shadowy something far away where the river widens to meet the bay a line of black that bends and floats on the rising tide like a bridge of boats meanwhile impatient to mountain ride booted and spurred with a heavy stride on the opposite shore walked paul revere now he patted his horse's side now he gazed at the landscape far and near then impetuous stamped the earth and turned and tightened his saddle girth but mostly he watched with eager search the belfry tower of the old north church as it rose above the graves on the hill lonely and spectral and somber and still and lo as he looks on the belfry's height a glimmer and then a gleam of light he springs to the saddle the bridle he turns but lingers and gazes till fr- till full on his sight a second lamp in the belfry's burns a hurry of hooves in a village street a shape in the moonlight a bulk in the dark and beneath from the pebbles in passing a spark struck out by a steed that flies fearless and fleet that was all and yet through the gloom and light the fate of a nation was riding that night and a spark and the spark struck out by that steed in his flight kindled the land into flame with its heat he has left the village and mounted the steep and beneath him tranquil and broad and deep is the mystic meeting the ocean's tides and under the alders that skirt its edge now soft on the sand now loud on the ledge is heard the tramp of his steed as he rides it was 12 by the village clock when he crossed the bridge into medford town he heard the crowing of the cock and the barking of the farmer's dog and felt the damp of the river's fog that rises when the sun goes down it was one by the village clock when he gambled into lexington he saw the gilded weathercock swim in the moonlight as he passed and the meeting house windows black and bare gaze at him with a spectral glare as if they already stood aghast at the bloody work they would look upon it was too by the village clock when be came to the bridge in concord town he heard the bleating of the flock and the twitter of birds among the trees and felt the breath of the morning breeze blowing over the meadows brown and one was safe and asleep in his bed who at the bridge would be first to fall who that day would be lying dead pierced by a british musket ball You know the rest in the books you have read how the British regulars fired and fled how the farmers gave them ball for ball from behind each fence and farmyard wall chasing the redcoats down the lane then crossing the fields to emerge again under the trees at the turn of the road only pausing to fire and load So through the night rode Paul Revere and so through the night went his cry of alarm to every Middlesex village and farm a cry of defiance and not of fear a voice in the darkness a knock at the door and a word that shall echo forevermore for I born on the night wind of the past through all our history to the last in 
the hour of darkness and peril and need, the people will waken and listen to hear the hurrying hoofbeats of that steed and the midnight message of Paul Revere. Isn't that a great poem? It really kind of lets you feel like you were there. So let's talk about what we learned this week. Well, we know that Paul Revere probably didn't say the British are coming because that wouldn't have made sense at the time. He probably said regulars or redcoats or something else like that. But as time went on, there was more of a difference between British and Americans rather than just British people living in the American colonies. And somehow that's what people started to say. They knew that the redcoats were coming because they had a network of spies. Dr. Joseph Warren gave Paul Revere that assignment to go warn everybody when the regulars would be coming, and they figured out that the soldiers were going to Concord, probably to get their weapons, so they had to warn the Minutemen to move them before they were all taken. You might have heard the saying, one if by land, two if by sea. Well, that lantern was to get the horse ready so Paul could just jump on and ride when he got to it. But it was also to let them know that Paul Revere was coming so that if he didn't, if he had gotten stopped along the way, that somebody else would know that they would have to do the ride for him. While Paul Reveal took the direct route to Lexington and Concord to warn everyone, William Dawes went the long way around, so hopefully one or both of them would make it in case the other one got stopped. But remember, while they were the first ones spreading the word, everyone that they told would go tell their friends as well, and they would tell their friends. The idea was for as many patriots to be warned as possible. One of the best things is that Paul Revere actually wrote down what happened at the time and a little bit later. It's really important that we get these first-hand accounts so that it's not from anybody else's point of view. So, what happened when everybody got to Concord? Well, we'll find that out next week. See you then. Remember to subscribe, like, and rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell a couple friends about Growing Patriots. You can find this episode and all other episodes at growingpatriots.com, where you'll also find other resources like videos, coloring pages, and more. Follow us on social media. We're at Growing Patriots on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. See you next time when the revolution gets kicked off. Free us all from tyranny, which everything we